0: The next reading of the word comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. If you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 38. This is God's word. John said to him, meaning Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward so far the reading of holy scripture we give thanks for it you may be seated and as we turn to consider this passage let us pray for god's help almighty god uh, we see a, a passage before us similar in some ways to the one we've already read where your people can easily fall into a critical spirit and we ask that as we consider these things that, that you build us up, that we might be more resistant to the ways that the world are and would encourage us to be. And not only that we're just built up to be better, but also that we're aware fully that even when we fall short, which we do, we can admit these things because there is forgiveness in Christ, that you... Receive, even those who fail to have the proper spirit towards brothers and sisters. And so help us see the grace we've received and the grace with which we should receive people. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word. We ask it. In the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. If you, if you pay attention to the news at all, uh, well, cancel culture is one of the buzzwords we hear often. Um, amidst, I mean, particularly amidst the straining tensions of our society as, as a polarized stance toward one another on all political matters increases. And the, and the thing is, since everything is political nowadays, that means every matter is a battleground ripe for cancellation. Getting, getting canceled uh, means that people higher up the, the social ladder or economic ladder or just power ladder than you, or just the outraged mob take away your place to speak publicly shaming you somehow out of the conversation entirely because because you didn't measure up to to their standards if you if you say something or are discovered to have ever said something that breaks with the prevailing mindset you're likely to get, to get booted out of the, your circle of friends, prevented from speaking or writing, and shamed for dissenting from whatever the block says demands our absolute affirmation today. One thing easily noted about cancel culture is that it wins, wins by the loudest outcry of moral outrage rather than by reasoned convincing or thinking. We, we have to cancel people when we can't cope with having our own unsustainable views, especially when confronted with alternative reasonings that might make sense. Cancel culture is a, is a pursuit for prestige, a quest for the top rung of the ladder through bullying and shouting rather than consult, consultation and convincing. And the mindset actually r- reveals usually a, a huge insecurity in the cancelers. The people who are most confident in their position... Ought to be the calmest, because you stand on firmest footing. I mean, I I panic at the edge of a cliff, right? But but not when I'm standing on solid ground. And the people who have flimsy views held together by force of will are, are the most outraged when challenged because they know they have nothing to say to defend their position, and so they devolve to shouting. Cancel everyone. So that reason and good principles can't shine. Now, uh, admittedly, this phenomenon seems far more widespread, intense, and vicious uh, than we can probably document before in, in history. Partly, I think that's because partly, I think that's because there are more outlets uh, to distribute opinions, and also, therefore, from which we can get canceled. More newspapers, more news sites, more. News channels and of course, social media which is which is perhaps the central cog in the cancel culture 's outrage machine, I think partly on the other hand it 's because of bad cultural trends that we as Christians should not embrace, and yet the thing is even even if that is more so the case today, I imagine that that fallen human nature has always had the impulse toward this sort of, this sort of thing. We saw it already in Numbers 11, 26 to 29. That guy needs to be quiet. He's not the guy that I thought should be talking. Sinners easily get uncomfortable because we know that the end of history, the ultimate verdict, is a situation where, where we won't have any of our own ground to stand on. And so people throughout the ages have tried to cancel even God himself, haven't they? Saying that he either doesn't exist or he's radically different, has to be radically different than the true God is as revealed in Holy Scripture. And certainly I don't have to argue that, that people across the millennia have have wanted to obtain power and prestige by the force of might and suppression rather than by love and benevolence. Prestige is, e- is easier to have, after all, by stepping on others than by plotting the faithful servant's path. In Mark 9:38 to 41 we find the disciples trying to indulge in at least a little bit of cancel culture the disciples wanted to silence another christian who, who was explicitly working in jesus name because even even though they were working towards the, or he was working towards the same purposes uh, he wasn't directly on the same team with the disciples. He wasn't in the group. Now, there are other implications here, but we can see that at least on that one, at least on the surface. And we find a real challenge set before us here concerning how the gospel of free acceptance with God because of grace alone in Jesus Christ entails certain things about how we ought to live in our discipleship. Jesus teaches us that his disciples ought not to be antagonistic. Put another way, we ought not always to be on the offense. We, we not, at least ought not to enjoy being on the offense, we, we know that sometimes our message will offend people when we say that they are sinners who need salvation, which is had only in Christ. I understand that that bristles the feathers. It upsets people who are entrenched uh, in sin and who have minds that are darkened. I understand that that message is offensive. How, however much our message might offend we should still try to make it so that our personalities are not the stumbling block keeping people from the gospel if the message is going to offend let it be so but hopefully we in ourselves in our persons for reasons that belong to us are not the offense and so Uh, Our main point is that Christ's gospel teaches us about the grace which we receive and the grace with which we ought to receive. Christ's gospel teaches us about the grace that we receive and the grace with which we ought to receive others. others. Our three points today are failures, faithfulness, and faith. So first, let's let's think about failures. Um, Mark. So this little passage, these uh, this little stretch between verses thirty-eight to forty-one, is the only instance in in Mark's gospel where John gets the spotlight all to himself, uh, which is interesting. I think if if we remember that that Peter was the apostle behind. Mark's gospel mark being his uh, stenographer of sorts uh, it, it's interesting that on the other hand John's gospel made sure to record that that John beat Peter to the foot race to Christ's tomb and I wonder if there was something in the background here we could potentially imagine that conversation right Peter I'm I'm praying Peter that if the Holy Spirit ever inspires me to write a gospel, he'd let me include that I won that race to the tomb. And Peter responded, well, John, I've got a story that I'd like him to make people remember too. And it's, it's one that shows us that even Christ's closest followers have their weakest moments. And so the story has a lot to teach us. But we also need to make sure we understand it kind of in the larger setting, in its wider context. We're we're in a narrative stretch since uh, chapter 9, verse 14, that is more critical of Christ's disciples. So tracing events from the beginning of Mark, uh, well, after Peter, James, and John saw Christ's transfiguration, they, they return to the other disciples to find them amidst failure to cast out a demon from a little boy. And the disciples then fell out with one another over who among them was the greatest, facing Jesus' um, soft and yet clear dis- disapproval. And now we come to this event where where John tried to parade his efforts to nudge someone else who was working in Jesus' name off the map. And a a few things shine a negative light on John and the disciples right here. First, John said to Jesus that, that this other person was Casting out demons in your name, now, now this is a, a kind of catchphrase that links us right back to verse thirty seven right where Jesus said that that true greatness is in how uh, if anyone receives one such child in my name receives me, and so John well found someone receiving the needy in jesus 's name. And John didn't receive him. Again, they kind of missed the point. Now second, I think it's actually really clear here that that one of the things happening is that the 12, you know, the key disciples wanted a supervisory role in God's kingdom. They'd already been arguing about Who's the greatest? And then read verse 38 with me. What did John say here? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. They understand that has to be by the power of Jesus Christ. They get that. And we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. John wasn't upset that this guy wasn't following Jesus. We saw in Numbers 11, didn't we, that Moses responded, "Are you jealous for me? Are you jealous for the Lord?" And John didn't say, "I tried to stop him because he wasn't following you." He wasn't. He was rather, on the other hand, upset that this guy didn't follow Jesus' premier disciples. He didn't recognize the pecking order. And so John was was still caught back in that same discussion about who was going to be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. Doesn't everybody see that, that they need to get behind us in line? We're your, your number one guys. And finally, even though John is in view here, as kind of the spokesperson, and and even though he was one of the disciples who witnessed the transfiguration, I think the the success of this person casting out demons in Jesus' name really starkly contrasts with the failure of, of Jesus' direct disciples to, to cast out a demon just shortly before in verses 14 to 29, right? So some other guy was able to do what Jesus' closest disciples couldn't manage to do. And this, this man's success made Jesus' own disciples' failure all the more obvious. And more than likely... This other disciple's success damaged the 12's sense of identity and special status. And so it brings us back to that sphere of insecurity and a sense of inferiority. The disciples' failures, which are are several, even wrapped into one small event, here, show us how they were still caught on the wrong idea of greatness and the wrong paradigm for how God's kingdom would advance. And that brings us to our second point. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And, I mean, there's not, there's not a lot of verses here. This is a short section. And so we can actually move already to, to start unwrapping how we can apply what we're, what we're seeing here in this text. And, and I want to put before you the suggestion that Jesus' response here prompts us to consider a, a kind of sanctified disinterest We need to learn a godly way of focusing more on being faithful in what we are doing than worrying about, or maybe perhaps better, rather than policing what everybody else is doing. Now, Here's the thing, I I think this needs some caveats before I kind of like launch into it. I I realize that we live in a world, um, that we live in the world, and have to relate and, and interact with others, which means at times assessing whether and how we can and should work with others, especially we may have to consider how their principles and values square with ours, especially as those... Things relate to our goals. And I realize there's situations in which we are put uh, in in situations with other people where these kinds of uh, judgments have to be made. And that's not exactly the situation we find in Mark's gospel. And so that's not the kind of situation that I'm thinking about in this application. Because... In this passage, John seemed to encounter someone whom he could have left alone. Right. So, so this isn't the same question as asking about how you relate to people who are in your life or have to be in your life and, and intersect with what you need to do. Uh, John was kind of seeking out somebody to criticize. And so I, I hope you see the the exact you know, area in which this application falls. Jesus' response was that someone who is faithfully working in his name won't be acting against him at the same time. Right? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. When the Spirit converts someone into a citizen of Christ's kingdom, he preserves them. For the one who is not against us is for us. It's interesting that Jesus kind of indulges him in the us. And the church today, I think, you know, not, not one-to-one, but overall, I think that we have a, a share in the deficiency in John's approach here. I think I think we're a bit over eager at times to to need to make these really definitive verdicts about everybody. Who's with us? Who's on the other team? We have to have clear lines and we have to know. We seem to think that like leaving somebody over there isn't an option. <laughs> On the because on the one hand, we are well. We just have our moments where we're ready to burn down what somebody else is doing, kind of performing our own baptized version of, of cancel culture if if we don't approve of the whole thing. But on the other hand, and I think that this is is the telling part of this because I mean it's one thing that you know error should be addressed. That's true. But I think this this other side of it is telling because we also feel this need to make a to make a team or a or a coalition with with everyone of whom we approve i 've made i 've made it clear you know where I stand about everybody because i i 've got a group with them They're, They may not be pastors in my denomination or you know whatever confessional tradition. But you know you know which people I approve of and which ones I don't. And so we seem to have no category for somebody being over there doing their thing. But what happens in our passage? Jesus pushes back on John's aggression to silence somebody else working in Jesus' name. And so he teaches us, I mean, certainly there are passages that show that Jesus doesn't put up with error as it's brought to him. And yet he also teaches us here not to be antagonistic. You don't have to go looking for things to criticize. Trust me, they'll come to you. And yet, the thing is, on the other hand, Jesus also doesn't say, he says, well, don't criticize him, leave him alone. But he also doesn't say, go get the guy and let's make a team. Jesus is fine with that guy doing his work over there. I often, I often get the question, uh, what do you think about pastor so-and-so? and the answer i always want to give but never do is i don't uh, i'm not really interested in seeking out other other people other ministries other pastors who aren't part of our connection of churches in the OPC or churches with whom we have an official relationship with the purpose, and this is specific, right? Seeking them out with the purpose to analyze unto approving or disapproving of their ministries. I don't really think I have the authority or or competence or that people really care enough about what I think to, to go look to render verdict on everybody out there. I'm kind of happy just to take what helps me and and leave the rest and and the thing is we we live in an age where where it seems like most people are are very agitated that that somebody somewhere on the internet might be mistaken give me a second honey i can't leave for dinner yet somebody on twitter is wrong And, and I wonder why we can't focus on what we're doing so we can do it to the best of our ability. I don't, I don't really feel the need to seek out other pastors online for a number of reasons. Because, I mean, in the first place, they aren't my pastor. And they're not thinking for me in the slightest. Our elders pastor me. The other pastors in our presbytery pastor me. Pastors who are my friends and who know me and look to apply the word of God to me are the ones that I should look to. And I hope you feel like, that's not just about me, right? Because I hope you feel like I and the other elders care for your nourishment so that, that you don't feel a pressure to keep up with what every other pastor that you could find online is saying to sustain your spiritual life. And so I I hope you see why and kind of the the shape of of how I've suggested a a sanctified disinterest. It's not an entire disinterest. It's a sanctified one, right? I'm not saying don't care about anything. I hope you see where I've, I've put this. We have to be... Invested and interested in some things, we don't have to be interested with with the purpose of of telling everybody what's right or wrong. We don't have to be interested in that way in everything. Be wise about how you, you focus your interest so that you aren't tempted to the same failing here as the disciples. They lost focus on their own faithfulness, distorting at least some, at some bad moments their service to Christ into a, a ladder-climbing method to be on the ground floor of kingdom greatness and 1st rank authority. Because, you know, one of the things that we have to be really on our guard about, you know, that, that creeps to the top as we watch the disciples, but certainly in our own lives too, is that the essence of paganism is doing things to get the gods to do what we want them to do. And we can't, right? It's, the paradigm of paganism is serving the gods enough, in enough ways, so that they serve us. And we can't treat God like that. We, we easily... Bend into that when we start comparing ourselves with others when we start looking for ways to criticize and and batter others down we should focus our interest on our own faithfulness so that we don't slip into the desire to indulge in cancel culture it's not really the way of the kingdom of God and that brings us to our final point Faith, faith, because we need to take, um, I mean, we, I want to be brief here, but I want to close our reflections and making out a really important point <laughs> to take away this text. Because we, we've thought about, I mean, our main point is that the gospel is about, I mean, teaches that Christ's gospel teaches us about grace we receive and the grace with which we receive. We've thought about that second half. And I want to think about the first half, the grace we receive. Because believer, whatever else is happening in the world, and you have to be aware of this because it's an increasing problem, whatever else is happening in the rest of the world, Christ doesn't cancel you. Christ doesn't cancel you. And the thing is, God is in the ultimate place to cancel us all, if he would. We're sinners deserving death and everlasting wrath. And yet, God the Son came in our nature for our redemption. John three seventeen. For God... Did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came, well, I guess to reactivate you for everlasting life, not to cancel you. When we should die, Jesus went to the cross. He was canceled for us, bearing the penalty for all of our sin. And he rose from death to stand in heaven to intercede for you forever, to make sure you have a place in God's kingdom. Jesus Christ doesn't put us out. He welcomes us into God's family. As his adopted brothers and renewed citizens of his kingdom. Faith ties us to Jesus so that we stand accepted in God's sight. God doesn't shun you, even in your weakest moments as a believer, God doesn't shun you. God doesn't tell you to be quiet, He brings you before His very throne of grace. That you might find help in your time of need. Faith is our bond to the Lord Jesus, receiving His righteousness and new life from Him. Sometimes, faith is also our bond to Jesus as the leash that God uses to drag us back onto the path with Jesus. And yet, He never lets you go. God keeps you. He keeps you in good graces and in His family. And He's about to welcome you to His table. He keeps you because of that very phrase that Jesus used in verse 41 because you belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we are ones who should be put out. We know that, that we are ones who, well, at the end of things ought to be canceled. And yet, you O Lord, have approved of us because of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice at his name, that we can, that we can pray in his name. That we're received rather than put out because of him. And we ask that as we learn all the more about that grace we've received, teach us about the goodness of of grace with which we should receive others. And help us not to be caught in, in feeling guilty all of the time for that. But, I mean, certainly convict us. But just help us that we might enjoy grace so much that we don't feel the need to be critical and that we're ready to extend mercy to those around us. Teaching, helping when it's needed, but not looking to be antagonistic because Jesus doesn't look for ways to criticize us, but receives us, (laughs) calls us his brothers, calls us his sisters, calls us his family and invites us to his table here and now. We ask all of this for his sake, in his name. Amen.